1: Just before we uh, begin looking at the text again, are there any questions about what's happening in the meditation mm-hmm. practice that need attention? Yeah. When I take the focus off my breath completely, I get panicky. Uh-huh. It, it kind of makes me panic. And my wow. breath feels short, and I just okay. stay with it, because that's what you've always said. Yeah. It just
0: doesn't seem to go any better over weekend.
1: You, you start to feel of, panicky or the breath The breath, the gets breath just feels kind of short and not
0: full and, and hmm. nice. It just feels kind of almost shallow.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So um, when your attention touches your breath, it changes your breath a little bit. But over time, we want the breath to just move in the way that the breath wants to move. So if your breath is feeling shallow, then you can let it just be shallow. And if it's feeling fuller, just let it be fuller. Um, but just move with whatever way the breath is. If it's shallow and you don't like that it's shallow, um, just talk to yourself about that. <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. Can
0: I add yeah? something that I felt really helped, was really helpful from some teachings from you yeah. regarding that when your concentration gets Steady and your mind starts to still, then the breath responds by getting more quiet itself and more subtle. Mm-hmm. And then when like attention starts picking up and getting distracted, then the breath gets like, bigger. So when I, because I can identify with that experience, and when
1: I notice that my breath feels shallow, that's just a helpful reminder for
0: me like there's there's nothing wrong with it. Maybe because my mind is just settling more, and mm-hmm. the brain needs less.
1: When you're not thinking much. Yeah, thanks. See, what would we do without Emily?
0: <laughs>
1: no, but I think that that's a really important point, and I think it's easy to miss, which is in meditation practice, <coughs> leaving your breath alone. Does everybody hear that? Leave it alone. And you can see there's so much around leaving your breath alone. That's really interesting to investigate. And... Um, As your mind becomes quieter, your breath becomes quieter, and I feel like I have to say this wherever I travel. You know, because someone always comes up to me at the end of the workshop and says, "Well, running is my meditation, and I'm a runner, and that's how I meditate, or, or, whatever. Dance is my meditation, whatever." And I think all that's true. I think when you're running you can get into really focused states and so on. But um, it's not the same thing as meditation. The artist's mind is not the same thing as the meditator's mind. The runner's mind is not the same thing as the meditator's mind. Because when you're meditating and you get really, really quiet, your breath almost stops. Your breath gets really, really shallow. And you can start to see very, very subtle aspects of mind that are harder to see when there's any kind of movement. And um, that's what we call access concentration, which is when you start to access um, kind of like tunnels of absorption where there's um, sustained focus. And I think those are really important uh, experiences for meditators along the path. And um, you can't really feel that. You can't have access to that if you're breathing heavily. Um, I just started running like I, more than a year ago. I, it's, it's kind of embarrassing. I'm a terrible runner. I run basically for twenty minutes. Me and Solange. <laughs> we run together. And um, and so I feel like I know a little bit what it what what meditate? What runners talk about like to a small degree and it's, it's not the same thing it's not the same thing <coughs> um, so I think it's important to keep the different silos as silos to respect the art of different systems and um, that's why I encourage you when you're meditating on the breath there's an art in learning how to leave your breath alone and when you're Using running as a form of meditation, there should be a special way you're working with your attention and with your breathing, but it's not the same thing as meditation. I have a question. Yeah. So um, during our normal day-to-day activity and mm-hmm. circumstances, let's say that we have this much cognitive ability. Yeah. When you're meditating, mm-hmm. it seems like there's a leftover cognitive ability that is not being utilized that grasps. To figure out what to focus on and what to identify itself with. Yeah.
0: And what are we trying to do with that, with that space? Keep it around. But then it tries to fly everywhere, trying to. That's trying its to nature. Itself.
1: Yeah. So I I love the term cognitive ability. <laughs> it's a very positive way I think of describing <laughs> <coughs> describing what is essentially a narcissism. Which is that the central function of the ego is to frame what's happening in any given moment as a story about me. And when you're meditating you start to see that all of your thinking I don't think it's an overstatement but all of your thinking is about you. And not only about you but about ways you can fortify yourself. <laughs> and even when you have amazing fantasies about people you hate, usually those fantasies are just fortifying your own self view. Sure. And so um, it's really important to have a break from that. The thing, though, is that when you have a break from thinking and you can really feel this, this quiet space of breathing then in that calmness the storyteller is going to come in again and it's going to try and frame it somehow and it's going to say whoa that's so cool this is really calm and then how can I make money out of this You know, or whatever. (laughs) If you have an entrepreneurial ego.
0: Um,
1: Okay. So then that happens. And that's a really important process. Because for the meditator, you want to be able to see when the ego comes in. And wants to try and storytell experiences of calmness. That's really important. And that's why it's really poor teaching when teachers describe meditation or spiritual practice as getting rid of the ego. We don't want to get rid of the ego. We actually, we want the ego around to experience the trauma of seeing that it doesn't rule the world. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, like we, In meditation, we want a, the ego to keep coming back and seeing that there are many different states of calmness and contentment and compassion, where the ego is not a central player. <coughs> so, it's like you want the ego around. That's why when I teach, I don't ever teach about, you know, I don't ever teach people to stop thinking. You, you just you just want to see it. Yeah, if that makes sense. Patanjali has an amazing metaphor for this in the at the end of the second chapter of the Yoga Sutra. Patanjali says that it's like a veil lifts from the mind. And the way I always understand this is, if you, does anybody here ever wear a veil? Do you, no, okay. It's my thing. <laughs> so, Okay, when you're wearing a veil,
0: because
1: <laughs> we do, we're all wearing a veil all the time. You're looking through lace or whatever at the world, through your bias, your prejudice, your gender, your uh, country, right? Like we all have filters that we look through. That's the veil, right? But when you lift the veil, like when you think of a wedding, what does the bride do with the veil? And what does she do with the veil? She doesn't throw the veil, that's the garter. <laughs> <laughs> She folds it over behind her head. (laughs) Or nowadays they fold it over behind her head. Important. (laughs) But here's what's really important about that these filters that we have, these stories that we have, this cognitive ability that we have. In meditation practice, when you keep staying with the object, like the breath, for example, you start to lift the veil. You start to see all these stories, and they, and they become less powerful. Everybody can feel this, right? But they end up back here. They don't go away exactly. They, just, they end up back here. So now all those stories still are around when you're meditating, but they're just like in the periphery, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. They're in the periphery. They're not in the foreground all the time. So yes, you might have all this cognitive ability, but we're just leaving it alone back there as cognitive ability. Because most of the time it's a disability. I sometimes joke that meditation is rehab for the over educated.
0: That's
1: <laughs> true. Yeah. Too much, too much thinking and comparison and
0: analysis. <laughs> seems like if you, if you allow yourself the leeway, like as you said, don't be so strict and say, okay, don't think, don't think. Allow yourself the leeway to observe that thought and then let it go.
1: You don't even have to let it go. If you sure. just observe, yeah. just notice there's a thought, then it, it turns into a bubble and it pops. Which is a great segue to the first line of the second section of the Lojong teachings. Thank you so much. Train in empathy (coughs) and compassion. And here we are. (coughs) There's two sections here. One is relative compassion, but we're in the absolute compassion section. And the teaching here is see everything as a dream. See everything as a dream, as a mirage. So isn't it interesting when you're in formal meditation practice, that you can be totally obsessed with something and it's so real and it owns you and then three minutes later you, you, it's just, you can't even remember what it was you were totally obsessed with or just gone has everyone had this kind of you know, experience um, and isn't it interesting how this is true for a lot of stuff that has happened in our life like um, You've experienced grief, and it's been the worst, most painful experience of your life. And maybe, like I said yesterday, hasn't gone away 100%. Maybe it shouldn't. And yet, the intensity of the grief uh, isn't there now in the way that it was there when you felt it most acutely. So, although you think that things are very solid... They're much more like dust. They're much more like a mirage. There are actually many conditions that have come together that look like one thing, but are just the coming together of many conditions and aren't actually a thing. on closer examination the present moment is like this also you try to look at the present moment and you can't see it because that's also a construct that you're superimposing on the present moment poor present moment all these people trying to capture it with books and retreats (laughs) and instagram But actually, the present moment is not findable. And this is helpful to remember when you identify a lot with your symptoms or your state or stage in life that um, in some contexts it's very real and in some contexts it doesn't exist. And the example I like to think of a lot is in meditation practice. When you're in meditation practice, Uh, Your age doesn't really have anything to do with it. With your inner subjective experience of meditation. And neither does your gender. Like during the day, your gender is really important. And you need to think about your gender and analyze the, the way that you're, you know, moving as that gender in different contexts. Like that's all really important stuff. But then, what a relief. You sit down in meditation, and your gender has nothing to do with it. So you start to see that all the things that you hold on to are empty of a fixed thingness. They're empty of a self. So then it becomes easier to start to look at a grand statement like this and make sense of it. Because this is like this is a really grand statement, is just look at everything like a dream don't hold on to your kids. It, that's just a dream also. It's a dream that it, they're your kids. They're not really your kids. Like even when you give birth, your placenta makes sure that that baby is not your baby. It's the job of the placenta, is to ensure that there is a separation between that individual and you, your body. And the placenta, researchers tell us, uh, doesn't belong to either of them. Placenta doesn't belong to the baby. It doesn't belong to the mother. It exists to nourish each of them and protect each of them. So, fathers, too, your kids are not yours. Oh, this also means that your parents aren't yours. <laughs> um, it also means that your thoughts, feelings, emotions, images, sensations are not yours. Because nothing belongs to you. Nothing belongs to you. So what this teaching on absolute compassion, which is very idealistic, is trying to, just, is trying to stretch your imagination to say... Sometimes you should take a break from your egoic thinking that there's a you and there's all this stuff out there and to start to realize that there are no things and that everything is a dream and don't hold on so tight and practice corpse pose, practice dying every day and then getting up again so you don't hold so tightly onto this life than the people in your life. And maybe that's the same as giving your breath a break. Learning how to not manipulate your breath might be the best training in learning how to not manipulate other people. It's so hard not to manipulate other people. (laughs) So hate is not solid. Love is not solid. And if you look closely at your mind, and you're really, really still, and you look at mind, you look at what moves through awareness, none of it is solid. You can't find anything solid there. So that's the first teaching of this section. The second teaching (coughs) says... um, Examine the nature of awareness. So it seems that awareness is watching this experience. Doesn't it? Examine the nature of awareness. That it seems like there's this awareness that is really stable and genderless and colorless and ageless that's looking at experience that's kind of in you and kind of not in you. It's really hard to describe what it is. But whatever it is, the awareness seems to be unnameable. But we can find a place in us where there's this really stable awareness that can look at experience. And I've worked with people even who have psychosis who can still find some little bit, some little island of awareness that can see themselves having the experience. You can try it right now as I'm talking. Just pause and take a breath in. And you can touch again, oh, this kind of wider awareness. during the day you should have many glimpses of this kind of awareness, just bigger awareness. Then section four, line four, bumper sticker four. How's everybody doing? Is everybody okay? Yeah? The room got really quiet. I was talking about emptiness and everything just got really quiet. (laughs) Uh, Number four, I love this one. This is a really good bumper sticker. Don't get stuck on peace. If we're not getting stuck on anything, if we're not grasping, don't get stuck on peace. And I think this refers to the many yogis who come to practice because they just want to feel peace. And there's no doubt about it. If you have a regular practice, you will feel peaceful. It keeps you going. There's no doubt about that. Everybody here knows what it's like to engage in a practice where it increases a sense of peacefulness. But don't hold on to it. Don't get stuck on it. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, this might be a silly analogy, but yeah. um, that made me think of big, Small Song, 10 cracking Mountains, and number four is- never get high on your own supply. Sorry, what are these? <laughs> so he says, number four. I so who's he, it from? It's a Notorious B.I.G. Okay, yeah. Um, he said, number four, I know you've heard this before, never get high on your own supply. Uh-huh. Hey, that's, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, that, so, it is. so yeah. that's just the way to.
1: Never get high on your own supply.
0: That's what it may mean. That's the new bumper sticker. That's the new bumper (laughs) sticker.
1: That is so good. Um, I really see that as the new People's logo. (laughs) 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 There was this really nice picture of Suniti on the People's Instagram the other day. So underneath it I wrote, the new mascot. So now what you could have is you could have a picture of Suniti, and then underneath it it can say, never get high on your own supply. <laughs>
0: um,
1: I would think that applies more to dealing. That's what the song is about. Okay. <laughs> Let's get back... <laughs> Don't get stuck on peace. And number five, uh, rest in the openness of mind. This is the one I want to end with today. Um, Because I think this is uh, really crucial. So let's look at this in two ways. The first way is um, when you have a regular sitting meditation practice and you're following your breath, something happens where... Once in a while, you'll lose track of your breathing, but you won't be distracted. So you'll be following your breath, following your breath, distracted, following your breath, following your breath, distracted. Do you know what I'm talking about? Following your breath, following your breath, distracted. And then you'll be following your breath, and then you'll just feel calm and receptive. And you won't be distracted. There'll be, there'll be no content there. Just really Calm. And then you'll get distracted. okay? But what this fifth teaching is getting at, and I, I want to underline this, is when you feel experiences where there's an absence of reactivity, when you feel a kind of openness of mind, it's really important to acknowledge it. To acknowledge it. To know it, to feel it. And to train in what it feels like to rest in an open mind. Most of us, our reference point in our own subjectivity is our afflictive emotions and our drama. Right? When you think about your character, you usually think about the structure of it in terms of drama or emotions. But one of the things that starts to happen in meditation practice is when you start getting really quiet, you develop new self-reference points. Like, you find new reference points in yourself that change how you perceive even your own self. And that's why when we find openness of mind kind of big sky mind spaciousness it's really important we acknowledge it to ourselves it's really easy to miss it and just let it imprint us any questions before we start to conclude I one back here and then yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I, I hear you, and I can relate to that experience. And I think um, that's why sometimes having uh, a teacher or mentor or community to connect with around your experience is really important. Um, because sometimes what happens, and also teachings, because uh, sometimes what happens is you see this a lot, too, with people... Um, with drug use, where they have these experiences where it really shifts their personality suddenly. And maybe even they see the ego just as empty. And it can be very destabilizing and unsettling and unstable. Um, And that's why it's really important to have teachings like this and other teachings that are maps to help us start to see that experience and map it and make sense of where we are in the map Um, it's also really important to have other people to talk to Um, I don't know if these are all things that you have in your own in your own life yeah Um, but definitely there is an unsettling phase I think but it's a phase and that's why in practice we try to make a distinction between disintegrating and unintegrating We don't want people to disintegrate. We want them to unintegrate. So in a very, very helpful way, we want to start to allow them to see structures of their personality, how it operates, and start to see through it. Um, If somebody isn't held in the right way or doesn't have enough support, um, sometimes the unintegration can become disintegrating. Does that make sense a little bit? So if you ever start to feel like you're doing a practice that starts to feel disintegrating, then it's good you you go look for some help. And uh, nowadays you can even find, you know, therapists who are meditators. Or you can find communities where they're having these kind of conversations. So um, you can't do it without other people. You need other people to help structure you in times like that.
0: I think it was my interpretation that one of the importances of asana and pranayama as well was to make sure that you are fit to handle these experiences because they they tend to be quite intense as we go through them. And as I've been learning, you know, through hot yoga and stuff and going of our or pressing our bodies and doing all these things, it's yeah. so that, that with the support of others or without, that we are capable to handle what comes up.
1: I used to think that. I used to think that pranayama and asana are really good preps for deeper states of meditation. But uh, I don't know if that's true. Just because you see people working with deeper states of meditation just fine without asana and pranayama. (laughs) I'm I'm not sure. I also just want to say, too, that um, if you take the things I've said so far and last night seriously, then um, this is a really intense path that we're all heading towards or on, which is a path of renunciation, which means a letting go of everything we hold on to. And it's really easy to let go of stuff in your closet. Like, uh, what's the woman who has the book out on the decluttering? Thing? The Witch?
0: The, the Life Changing Magic. Yeah. Totally. Out. I don't remember her name. Yeah. I've read it. yeah.
1: So, yeah. Um, so, it's really easy to get rid of stuff and put it in plastic bags and take it to the wherever you take it. But it's really, really hard to uh, recognize. Patterns of chronic reactivity, and fear, and uh, woundedness, and really uh, transform that stuff, and not hold on to your fixed stories about that, and the identities you've created about that. And I don't want to be naive. You need identities around that stuff, but it's also not who you are. Isn't that the strange thing about identity? Like, politically, it's so important to, like, be hyper-aware of your identity. And also, it isn't who you are. (laughs) So strange. I hope I I responded to your your question. Oh, yeah. I'm going to comment on character comment. Yeah. Because I have a terrible
0: time staying in my body. And over the last couple of years... (laughs) <laughs> and that has made it uh, more difficult.
1: And so I relate greatly to what you were saying, because when I read everything as a dream, I panic. Mm-hmm. Because once you have an experience of dissolution of the self or ego, then I'm just
0: trying these days to stay in my body. So, mm-hmm. in, um, so when I
1: see that, I'm like, no, 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 everything has to be here. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. Um, so do you talk, talk. Okay. Oh great! Okay. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's a really common, common story? Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, both of you. Um, as you might guess, I'm not a big fan of, you know, these practices. But, um, yeah. You know, I think that you don't want to. It's a, just let it be a gradual practice. This is a gradual practice. And I think sometimes, especially, uh, I see this, I don't know if you see this in your community, but people who have a lot of old emotional grief or woundedness or trauma um, are the people who tend to get attracted to the fast, more colorful, more transcendent kind of spiritual practices and um, that may not necessarily be your story but you see it often and um, so teachers also need better radar for uh, students who come in who want to transcend their experience but what we're learning here is that uh, we don't want to transcend our experience, actually we want to be in our body and if you ever have a hard time being in your body during stillness practice You should just reconceive of it as self soothing practice. And do whatever you need to use your breathing and use your body to just soothe yourself for a predetermined period of time. And um, that's a really uh, nice way of thinking about practice, too. Yes?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, a lot of times i am get into the sinking mind where I'll just start getting sluggish and more sluggish. Uh uh-huh. And unable to hold that concentration. Yeah. So how do you hold the concentration without, you know your body saying, oh well, everything's selfless just
1: shut down. Well, I'd have to know more like more details to offer suggestions. Like but prob- probably I'd say what you're describing is heading towards mm-hmm either sleepiness or dissociation. So um, you don't wanna lose track of your breathing. You don't wanna let your body get passive. You wanna stay connected to the feeling that you're in a body. Um, Those states of concentration that I'm referring to are still experiences where you're aware of being in a breathing body. Okay. Does everybody hear how the body is really important? <laughs> Can I, right. I just ask one
0: yeah. question? Sure. I was going to ask a little similar question because I feel this like swooniness, you know, like, like, and then like kind of a jerk, like I'm getting caught in class falling asleep. So I don't know if that's like laziness or
1: what, like what, what that process is and how, you know. Yeah. Um, okay, so l- let's end with this. Sleep. Does anybody feel sleepy? No? Sometimes. There's some yawning happening. Sleep is one of the most difficult mental states to work with because no one ever works with it. If you're tired, you eat chocolate or have espresso, especially if you live in Portland, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, or you go to sleep and have a siesta. Especially if you live in Portland.
0: Because
1: <laughs> you guys all nap here, right? <laughs> so um, uh, in meditation practice, um, when you uh, start to get sleepy, um, images become very predominant, and yeah, and it's really important that you catch it and consider it another form of thinking that's more unconscious. Because uh, sleeping is just thinking in the unconscious. And the problem with sleeping when you're meditating, and actually the problem with sleeping, one of the problems with sleeping, is that when you sleep and you dream, you're always the main character. When you dream, you're either yourself or you're looking at yourself from above or behind. And all the senses work except for the nose in sleep. Your sense of smell doesn't operate in dreams. And your life is going along, and you're the main character, which is very self-centered. All of you have very self-centered (laughs) dreams. So in meditation practice, you want to um, catch sleepiness by noticing sleepiness from the awareness that's not sleepy. Because awareness doesn't get sleepy. Awareness is just noticing sleepiness. Does that make sense? And one way to do that is you put a little bit more energy in your inhale. And you inhale just to give a little more prana to the posture, and you keep looking at sleepiness without identifying with it. Oh, sleepiness, there you are. You don't say, I'm sleepy. You just go, the sleepiness. There's the sleepiness. When you get to know the sleepiness, and then, it doesn't usually last that long. It then turns into, like, I'm hungry.
0: <laughs>
1: I'm jealous. <laughs> does that, does that, yeah. yeah. And that's why, eventually, one of the things yogis do is they um, do lucid dreaming. Where when you're sleeping at night, you wake up in your dream and you practice mindfulness. So your, your body is sleeping. You're still asleep. But you wake up in your dream and then you look around and you try to be mindful of your activity to interrupt some of this grasping of me. You can even do it while you're sleeping, which um, maybe we'll work on after we do ayahuasca. <laughs> Later today.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, but I can't get. I can't do what with my supply? Get
0: <laughs> I can't
1: get high on my own supply. Well, it's interesting that you brought up the lucid dreaming, because that's what I was about when you
0: were talking about getting sleepy in meditation, because I do work a lot with lucid dreaming. And- always come easy to me, even as a kid. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, that's a great way to say it. Yeah, and if we tie that to what Raj was saying about cognitive capability, which I love this term so much, it's like when you're meditating and you're thinking, the thinking can go down, like if there's a fork in the road, it can go into daydreaming or into sleeping. Right? And it's just in meditation practice, you're training not to go into the, di- into the sleeping mode but sometimes you slip off into the sleeping mode so you want to keep staying here not going into either realm that's why in meditation retreats people often describe not needing as much sleep because um or sometimes even having a hard time falling asleep because sometimes you lie down and you're meditating and you're not letting yourself go down that other road into the sleeping so you have to like say to yourself, "Okay, I'm meditating. I have to like let the attention go into the sleeping road." So okay, we never got to the sixth sentence, but we'll do that bumper sticker tomorrow, which is the sentence about beginner's mind. Um, thank you very much, everybody, for listening. Um, I hope that you're learning something. I am. And um, we'll take a break for. How long do you need for a break? Like 10, 15 minutes? Mm-hmm. 10 minutes? And then we'll do some movement practice in end the day. Um, thank you for bearing with my coughing and um, temperature changes. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, tomorrow we start again at 10. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, same schedule tomorrow.
0: Okay. Thank you. What's that? Thank you for listening to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. If you like this podcast, you can support it by subscribing on iTunes or SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rate us and leave a comment. Your feedback helps to distinguish us from the pack. You can also support us by word of mouth, tell a friend or send a tweet. Finally, please consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Michael Stone. Even a couple of dollars a month will help us reach our goals. To learn about Michael's retreats and his online courses, go to michaelstoneteaching.com. Once again, that's michaelstoneteaching.com. With your support, we'll continue to build a community library about mindfulness and mental health that can be shared with the world. Thank you for supporting this community without walls.